president of Haiti has been assassinated in his home. A heavy security presence at the presidential compound. But hours earlier, it was a different story. When a brazen attack was launched by gunmen who told onlookers they were running a drug enforcement operation. The recent assassination of the president of Haiti is just the last in a long line of political, economic and natural disasters to engulf the nation. According to World Bank figures, Haiti is the poorest country in Latin America and amongst the poorest nations on the planet. Yet this has not always been the case. For over a century, Haiti was France's richest colony, producing both sugar and coffee for a global market. Then, in the early part of the 19th century, it became the world's first black-led republic and the first independent Caribbean state to abolish slavery. In this revision with me, Annabelle Quince, we ask why Haiti, a once proud and wealthy nation, has become politically unstable and impoverished. Haiti is situated in the Caribbean, on the western side of the island of Hispaniola. It occupies just under 30,000 square kilometres and has a population of around 11.5 million. It's just a short boat ride from Florida and only 18 kilometres south of Cuba. But let's begin with how and why this island in the Caribbean, thousands of kilometres from Europe, became a French colony. Actually, this island is ground zero of European colonization in the Americas. There was a kind of robust Spanish colonization on the island, decimation of the indigenous population very early in the 16th century, and some sugar plantations. My name is Laurent Dubois, and I am a professor at the University of Virginia. As the Spanish became more focused on the other parts of Latin America, the French were able to slowly kind of gain a foothold, first with pirates and informal settlements on the western part of the island. And then at the end of the 17th century, the Spanish officially ceded that part of the island to the French and it became the colony of Saint-Domingue. Can you explain how significant Saint-Domingue became to France and to the global trade in sugar and coffee? So Saint-Domingue becomes the most profitable colony in the Americas by the late 18th century. It's a place where you have a lot of sugar plantations, which are these large, almost industrial projects where you have sugarcane fields and then sugarcane processing all going on in the same area with sometimes hundreds and hundreds of enslaved people. And then coffee plantations were established more and more in the 18th century in the mountains of Saint-Domingue. This combination produced enormous amounts of wealth imported into France, and then a lot of the sugar notably was re-exported to other parts of Europe, so created great fortunes, all, of course, on the backs of enslaved laborers in a very particularly brutal plantation system where you had this 90% of the population enslaved. The majority of them were African-born because the death rates were so high. So you had this population of enslaved people, many of them who had been born and raised in Africa, controlled by this very violent system, nurturing these immense profits. Like many colonial societies, Saint-Domingue was very divided, not only between slaves and non-slaves, but also by class and colour. The structure of the colony was complicated because you had... uh, white minority, which was dominant politically, economically, and you had a significant form of racism, but you had divisions between the different social groups and racial groups in the colonial period. 
Uh, my name is Robert Faton. I'm a professor of politics in the Department of Politics at the University of Virginia. Then you had the slave population, and the slave population was also divided between the so-called newcomers and the so-called oldcomers. Therefore, a division within the black population, and then you have gradation in terms of color because of the interaction between the white colonialists and the slaves. The lighter you skin, the more privileged, if you wish, you were within the slave structure. The brutality of the Haitian plantation system, where almost 90% of the population were enslaved, led first to resistance, then to the Haitian Revolution, which began in 1791, and led to the abolition of slavery in Saint-Domingue. Sometimes people looking simplistically will see that the French Revolution happened in 1789, and they assume that enslaved people simply suddenly heard about the ideas of liberty, equality, and fraternity, and decided that they wanted that also. I'm Alyssa Goldstein Seffenwall, and I'm professor of history at California State University, San Marcos. Enslaved people started resisting the moment that they were kidnapped, and they did not stop when they were on slave ships or when they got to the New World, even if their types of resistance changed. So I think what happened in Haiti is that there was this moment that enslaved people saw where the French whites were fighting with each other, as well as with free blacks on the island. And in this moment of chaos, which is something that did not happen in other places in the same way as it did in France and its colonies, enslaved people sensed that this might finally be a time when revolution might succeed. So in 1791, revolution was launched in the north of Haiti, and it gradually swept across the whole island. And eventually the French realized that they had to acknowledge that Haitians wanted to be free. The Haitian Revolution is the only case where an uprising of the enslaved led directly to the abolition of slavery. The enslaved rise up in 1791. And by 1793, they have won full and unconditional emancipation, something which even the abolitionists at the time couldn't quite imagine. The reason the revolution, I think, is so fundamental and major part of just world history in general is because that's really the first place where a group of people insist forcefully and successfully that you can't really declare universal human rights and maintain slavery, right? That there's a fundamental contradiction between the two. And so the effects of that, obviously, throughout the Americas have been massive. While slaves in Saint-Domingue gained their freedom in just a couple of years, independence was not gained until 1804. Napoleon, who came to power in France in 1799, attempted to reimpose slavery in Saint-Domingue, but he failed, and Haitians claimed their independence. Yes, and actually the process of emancipation that I've described all took place within the French context. And in fact, the French National Convention ratified and supported the abolition of slavery in 1795. So France actually became the first nation to abolish slavery. So the real transformation happens as a result of Napoleon, who, when he comes to power, encouraged by a number of conservative planters, decides that he wants to actually reestablish slavery and return to the old order. And it's that decision really that triggers the war of independence in for Haiti. In, in other words, people in Saint-Domingue are put quite literally in front of a choice between freedom and independence, right? They choose independence because it's a way of preserving their freedom. The new independent Haitian government faced several challenges. First, the refusal of the international community to recognise their independence and the internal divisions within Haiti. 
after 1804, there were two main challenges that Haiti faced. One was from the international community. Many of the foreign powers, which were slaveholding powers at the time, did not want Haitians to succeed because they thought that it would inspire enslaved people in other places to revolt, which was true. There were a number of revolts in different places in the Americas inspired by the Haitian Revolution. So there was a determination to try to keep Haiti isolated and to keep Haiti poor. So under Thomas Jefferson's presidency, the U.S. had an embargo against Haiti and France would not recognize the independence of its former colony. And the other issue is this division. And I'll say in general, in colonial situations, when colonizers have tried to divide people and in Saint-Domingue, they were divided by the shade of their skin. When the colonizers leave, things don't often magically go back to normal. There are too many divisions. So there did continue to be some divisions between mixed race people, many of whom had been wealthier and had been free before the revolution and people who'd been enslaved until 1794. And this is a conflict that has often endured in Haitian history. Also, the violent nature of the revolution and the battle for independence left a legacy of authoritarian leadership that shaped politics in Haiti through the 19th century. The other element coming from the revolution was the violence of the revolution. This was indeed an extremely violent moment. The Haitian revolutionaries would say, which in Creole means you cut the heads and you destroy and burn the houses, obviously, of the colonialists. So you had, as a result of the revolution, a deeply violent form of politics and of command type of organization, because in order to win the revolutionary war against the French, the Haitian leaders had to establish a very strong hierarchical army. And that also came to some extent to halt the post-revolutionary period because most of the leaders of an independent Haiti, while they declared universal freedoms and the abolition of slavery, were authoritarian figures. And it's a pattern that has unfortunately persisted. The other key challenge was how to manage the shift from a plantation economy based on slavery to something different. For Haiti to be getting foreign income, people needed to be growing sugar and coffee. But these are cash crops that don't feed the person who's growing them. So there were many formerly enslaved people who, instead of wanting to continue to grow sugar and coffee for export, preferred to engage in small-scale farming of crops that would feed themselves. And there was an effort by the leaders of the country to try then to figure out how to force people to work on plantations. So that is another tension. And essentially what happens is that while the leaders continue to push this vision of the plantation order and even attempt to use military control to enforce it, you have the most of the population in some ways, somewhat quietly, not always directly, are simply going about creating a completely different order. They take over the land of the plantations. They move into hills or other areas where there's land available, and they begin to create a system where they cultivate their own food, where they create internal markets to sell within the country. And essentially, they just 
take over much of the country and the elite, the government really doesn't have the power to enforce anything different. And so effectively, they ultimately kind of have to cede most of the countryside to this new order. And they control the population in other ways, but they really don't control the economic model. In 1825, France did agree to recognise Haiti's independence, but only after Haiti agreed to pay France an indemnity of 150 million francs, which in today's money is more than $21 billion. France would not recognise the independence of its former colony until in 1825, Haitians finally agreed to pay a massive sum, 150 million francs, which was some kind of indemnity to the colonists for their lost property. This is ridiculous, of course, when we think about something like the Holocaust, where afterwards people who had been in concentration camps were given money to compensate them for their trauma. But in this case, in Haiti, formerly enslaved people were expected to pay the French back for their freedom. So this mass amount of money, which Haitians did not have, they needed to borrow bar with interest. And this is something that Haitians had to keep paying back until the 20th century and is one reason why Haiti's economic growth was stunted. Despite the debt and the lack of foreign trade, the first hundred years of independence was positive for many ordinary Haitians. In fact, in the 19th century, life in Haiti for the much of the population, I would say, is quite good economically. There's, for one thing, between 1804 and the the early 1900s, there's a fourfold population increase, the largest population growth in the Caribbean in that time period, which suggests, obviously, that there's enough food and health conditions are good and so forth for the population to grow. People in the 20th century are used to thinking of Haiti as a place that people leave. But in the 19th century, Haiti was actually quite a magnet for migration. You had Germans migrate there, other Europeans, people from the Middle East, people from other parts of the Caribbean. There were waves of African-American migrants as well, in part because basically, if you look at the Americas in the 19th century, probably in Haiti was one of the best places for people of African descent to live. They were free, independent, not in a regime of white supremacist terror the way that Black people in the United States were. And the economy thrived because it was really focused on sustaining the livelihoods and the, the, the lives of Haitians. It wasn't creating a lot of surplus wealth or making other people very rich, but it was actually quite good economic system for the majority of the Haitian population. Much of what we see in Haiti today and the poverty and the economic situation is not inevitable in some ways, but the result of specific things that happened over the course of the 20th century. This is Rear Vision. I'm Annabel Quince. And in this program, we're asking why the nation of Haiti is politically unstable and economically weak. The debt Haiti owed to France ensured that France remained influential in Haiti through the 19th century. But by the beginning of the 20th century, America had become interested in the region, and American banks had acquired much of the debt owed by Haiti. There's been an interest in the U.S. expanding into the Caribbean. They, of course, invade Cuba and Puerto Rico in 1898. Puerto Rico, of course, remains part of the United States today. Cuba is occupied for a period, but then the United States leaves, but continues to exercise a great deal of economic control. So Haiti's a, a bit part of that larger story. The U.S. had also been getting involved increasingly in Haitian finances and taking over from French banks in the years prior to the occupation. Then in 1915, America invaded and occupied Haiti for almost 20 years. One of the consequences, one of the excuses that led to the American occupation 
was the fact that the Haitian government was bankrupt and therefore could not repay part of its debt to American private banks. Before the occupation itself, the American troops arrived in Haiti. They literally took over the National Bank and took whatever gold was in the National Bank and gave it to a bank in the United States. That led to a political crisis in Haiti, and eventually that crisis led a year afterwards to the occupation that lasted from 1915 to 1934. U.S. troops arrive in 1915. At first, actually very little resistance to the U.S. troops. Members of the elite and others had a great admiration for the United States. In many cases, thought perhaps the period of occupation would be short and would help kind of reestablish a certain kind of stability. But then the actual practice of the occupation on the part of the United States gradually and then more and more swiftly turns many Haitians against them. By 1918, there's a full-fledged uprising against the United States on the part of groups that are known as cacos that rise up against the U.S. Marines throughout the country, leading to a quite brutal war where the U.S. Marines are fighting basically a counterinsurgency. One thing they do is they really centralize Haiti. They do build roads that connect parts of the country. They also centralize the government within Port-au-Prince. They centralize the economy within Port-au-Prince. And very importantly, they also create a Haitian army. There had obviously been Haitian armies before that, but they had really been kind of loosely somewhat organized. And there was always these rural armies that could kind of contest the center. But the U.S. creates a Haitian army initially to help them suppress the revolt. And that Haitian army then becomes the foundational institution throughout the 20th century. It's also during the U.S. occupation that a young man named Francois Duvalier, who was a doctor and trained actually in U.S. medical schools, he actually trained for a year at the University of Michigan in the United States, emerges as a figure. And of course, he'll, he'll play a defining role later in, in Haitian history. In 1934, we often refer to as Haitian historians as Haiti's second independence. And yet the U.S., even though it left, it did not really stop interfering in Haitian politics. And we can just jump ahead to the 1950s when we look at the Duvalier regime coming to power, the dictatorship, which was so horrible for Haitians, the U.S., even if the rhetoric didn't always match it, the U.S. supported the Duvalier government because Papa Doc, Francois Duvalier, declared that he was anti-communist and that he was not going to allow communism to arrive or take root in Haiti as it was in Cuba. The U.S. after 1934 has continued many times to intervene in Haiti. And if it does not like someone who's in charge, there have been ways that the U.S. has intervened to try to get a leader out of power or install one it sees as more favorable. The Haitian people know only one leader in the Haitian Republic, Dr. Duvalier. I have been elected for president for life. It's important to remember that one of the reasons Duvalier can stay in power is because he has the strong support of the United States. Duvalier presents himself as anti-communist. After the Cuban Revolution of 1959, the U.S. is essentially most interested in that over democracy itself. 
And it's only in the early 1980s when the popular resistance to Duvalier really, really grows eventually with an uprising in 1986 against him that the U.S. finally withdraws its support. But that's 30 years of a really harsh dictatorship that has profound impacts. It's sort of a period of deeper and deeper impoverishment of rural areas, move to the cities, environmental degradation. So there's a huge amount of cost to that. And so I think the leaders who follow where you have essentially the infrastructure of repression that Duvalier has built is still in Haiti. In 1990, in a presidential election monitored by international observers, the left-leaning priest Jean-Bertrand Aristide won in a landslide. Aristide is the winner. For us, for the Haitian people, Aristide is the winner. And in 1990, when Jean-Bertrand Aristide, who is a charismatic priest, who's really advocating for the population, a left advocate for true transformation in Haiti, gets elected with a large majority of the, of the vote, he's in power barely a year, really, before he's overthrown by elements of this prior Duvalier regime who are still in, in the military. And so this moment of potential for democracy really gets crushed relatively quickly. And Aristide spends three years in exile in the United States while the military regime carries out a a fierce repression against his supporters. There is a, a lot of hope in the late 80s after the overthrow of Duvalier, a lot of struggle for democracy, but that coup and what happens in the 1990s stalls at least one moment of possibility in in important ways. Aristide fled to the United States and gained the support of the newly elected Clinton administration, which launched Operation Uphold Democracy, a military intervention to remove the military regime that had overthrown President Aristide. The repression and bloodshed in Haiti have reached alarming new proportions. When he had been deposed from power with some help from the CIA, that was under the administration of George Bush, the father, George Herbert Walker Bush. And then when Aristide was reinstalled, it was by President Clinton. The problem is the Clinton administration did not reinstall him without conditions. There was an expectation that he would neuter a lot of his policies. And Aristide was popularly elected in this election that was 1990 to 1991 with 67% of the vote. And people had a great excitement. This was the first time that they felt that they were going to have a leader who really cared about the majority of people and not the elites. He was going to start having more taxation, more social services. And when he was brought back to power, he was essentially told, you cannot do all of those things. You depend on us. And sure enough, in 2004, another plane came, this time under George W. Bush, the son, because there were concerns about his rule and the U.S. didn't like the policies that he was enacting, including trying to have a slightly less miserable minimum wage. And he was put on a plane and the U.S. announced that he had decided to resign for the good of his people, but that's something that Aristide himself contested. During this period of political upheaval, Haiti suffered a terrible earthquake. As we go to air tonight, a major international relief effort is heading for the devastated capital of Haiti. Clearly after the earthquake, Haiti was a country that was in a complete crisis. The earthquake killed essentially about anything between 200,000 to 300,000 people. So Haiti had no capacity to deal with that crisis. So whether they liked it or not, Haitians had to accept foreign assistance. Now, the problems with that assistance were that 
most of the foreign assistance didn't go to the government. It didn't go to Haitian NGOs. The vast majority of the assistance went to international non-governmental organizations in Haiti. And that, from my perspective, contributed to the further evisceration of the Haitian state so that Haiti has become the NGO republic. Another thing that happened after the earthquake is that there was more interference from the international community in elections. And in 2015, there was a lot of meddling by the U.S. State Department and certain candidates were banned, including Aristide himself. And in an election that many Haitians think was marked by fraud, this party, PHTK, came to power, which is Michel Martelly's party. And again, this is not a party that most Haitians voted for. And their impact in the last six years has been really horrible leading up to this assassination. President Jovenel Moise, who was assassinated on the 7th of July, was selected to be the presidential candidate for the political party PHTK in 2015 by the then president, Michael Martelly. One of the things that they did, the PHTK, was to favour foreign business interests over the interests of Haitians themselves. There are sweatshops in Haiti owned by American garment manufacturers, for instance, and Martelli was seen as more favorable to U.S. and other foreign business interests. But one of the main things that they did that has gotten Haitians very angry, especially since 2018, is that there were funds that were given to Haiti by Venezuela that were called the Petro-Caribe Funds. And through this program, Venezuela gave Haitians fuel at far below market rates. The idea was that the government could then sell the fuel to people more at market rates and the difference would be used for development. Martelli's government made all kinds of beautiful photographs. They said that they were building stadiums and schools and roads, except these things were not actually built. They, in fact, pocketed. They seem to have pocketed the money. So there started to be a popular movement in 2018, demanding that the government provide an accounting for what it had done with the Petro-Caribe money. And protests continued against Jovenel Moise, who succeeded Martelli, and people were really hoping that they could finally dislodge him from power this past year as his term ended. But on February 7th, when he was supposed to have his term ending, he refused to leave power, and he also was not scheduling elections to replace him. Even by Haiti's standards, the last months have been volatile. Protesters have accused the president of overstaying his term. Those demonstrations have been met with heavy-handedness. And in February of this year, 2021, Haitian people were in the streets constantly risking their lives to protest against this government, but hoping that the international community would listen and help them have a transitional government that would host real democratic elections. But as we now know, President Moïse was assassinated. So where does that leave Haiti? And is there any hope for a democratic solution? Well, <laughs> if you look at past history in Haiti, you, you have to be pessimistic. 
My personal hope is that the crisis is so acute that all of the key actors in Haitian society, not only the traditional political parties, the traditional political class, decide that this is the time to make concessions and to reach a compromise with the rest of society. That is to say, you would include the vast majority of Haitians and their organizations, and you would include civil society, and ultimately form a government of national unity and a government of transition. That is my hope, that Haitians can find among themselves a solution to their own problems, and that the international community doesn't interfere in that process. Robert Fatton, Professor of Politics at the University of Virginia. My other guests, Laurent Dubois, Professor of History also at the University of Virginia, and Alyssa Goldstein Seppenwall, Professor of History at California State University. The sound engineer is Anne-Marie de Betancourt. I'm Annabel Quince, and this is Rear Vision on Radio National. <laughs> ¶¶